This super rare Friday podcast is dedicated in honor of my friend Heshi, who texted me last night, quote, is there a Hanukkah podcast yet? And I told him that he's putting so much pressure on me to make a new podcast. And then he assured me, no, there's no pressure at all. Nothing was intended. But nevertheless, here we are. I had assumed that maybe the audience would give me a break. Maybe we could take a year off. I did, I think, two Hanukkah podcasts last year. And you know what? Maybe the audience would just listen to the old ones. That's what I thought. But then when I saw how she touched me, that the audience is craving, is desirous, is thirsting for a brand new Hanukkah podcast, I said, okay, let's give it a shot. So here we go. You let me know if it is indeed up to snuff. Now, regarding the email newsletter, I got a bunch of messages that people found the email newsletter in their spam folder. If you want to get the email newsletter every week and you subscribe on the website, rabbiwalby.com forward slash newsletter, it sends a confirmation email. If you haven't gotten it, it's most likely in your spam folder. And I assure you that this email newsletter will not be spam. So if you want to check your spam folder and see if it's there and click not spam, then you'll be able to get it. If not, then just keep it in your spam. That's okay as well. So here's what I want to talk about on this special, super-duper rare Friday Hanukkah podcast. And that is the connection between Joseph, the great hero of the Torah and the Parshas that we're reading right now, and the week of Hanukkah. Every year, Hanukkah always falls out during the weeks that we read about Joseph and his exploits in Egypt. And obviously, this is not a coincidence. And many of the sages and many of the ancient books are always trying to find some overlap between Joseph and between the story of Hanukkah. And over the years, I've heard a whole bunch of different connections. And today, in this special Friday podcast, I want to propose my own. So we know that the villains, the Greeks, they wanted to attack the Jewish people. And they wanted to attack them spiritually and religiously. And they made all kinds of harmful and constricting edicts that forbade various practices of Jewish life. And eventually Jewish people could say, we're done with this. We're going to fight back. And the spiritual conflict eventually became an armed physical conflict. The Jewish people bounce the Greeks out of Judea, restore and rededicate the temple, and the festival of Hanukkah is enacted. But what is the essence of the conflict, the spiritual conflict that led to the eruption of the tinderbox and the ultimate conflict between the Jews and the Greeks? What did the Greeks actually want to do spiritually to our people? So the Midrash tells us that they wanted not only to themselves exhibit this anti-faith of the Greeks, they wanted us, the Jewish people, to disavow our relationship with God. The Midrash tells us, and this is going to the second verse of the Torah, the second verse of the Torah talks about the land was empty, it was desolate, it was dark. And the Midrash tells us that each one of these descriptions is connoting or is hinting towards one of the exiles. There's the Babylonian, the Mede, and the exile that we're currently in, which is the exile of of Esav, of Edom. And the word vechoshech and darkness is a reference to the kingdom of the Greeks 
that they wanted to bring darkness to cover and conceal the eyes of the Jewish people with their decrees. And they said, and listen to this, they told the Jewish people, you should write on the horn of an ox that you have no portion in the God of Israel. Our searchers are telling us the Greeks, they represent darkness. And then a very specific demand of the Jewish people, take a horn of an ox and write in it the following statement, we have no portion in the God of Israel. The Greeks were very intellectual. What they protested was the spiritual. They protested the relationship to God. And they wanted us to disavow relationship with God and us to declare that we have no connection with the Almighty. We have no portion in the God of Israel. And they wanted specifically that this be written on the horn of an ox, which is a very strange place to write something. Maybe you got a piece of paper, a papyrus, if you will, a tablet. No, the Greeks demanded that we write this statement in which we disavow God and our connection to God on the horn of an ox. And the Maharal explains that the ox, the bovine, that's there to symbolize and to highlight the sin of the golden calf. The Jewish people, of course, one of the worst sins we've had in our history, they worshipped or they did something which resembled worshipping the golden calf. And the Greeks don't want us to forget that. And they want to say that we have to kind of bring back the calf, bring back the bovine, bring back the ox, and right on the horn that we have no portion in the God of Israel, we have no connection with God. I think there's a deep point over here. Why did the Greeks specifically choose to highlight this particular sin of the Jewish people? And here's what I want to speculate. The Jewish people, during the sin of the golden calf, we were at our spiritual peak. We were at Sinai. We've been freshly released under very dramatic and miraculous conditions from Egypt. What were we eating? We were eating manna already. We had defeated Amalek in war already. We're just a few months removed from the splitting of the sea. We experienced prophecy 40 days prior on a national scale. The Jewish people in the background, in the run-up to the golden calf, we were at our spiritual acme. What happened then? The Greeks want us to remember, even when you were at your spiritual peak, you rejected God. At the time, at the place of the highest holiness, say the Greeks, hey, you showed us that there's no holiness at all. And again, the Greeks don't suffice with rejecting the spiritual themselves. They want us, the Jewish people, ostensibly the holiest nation, to repudiate it as well. Their mission was to attack the places and the people who had the most holiness and to stamp out the holiness that existed. They wanted to bring the darkness to the places that have the most light. You Jewish people, ostensibly the holiest people, you yourselves have no portion in the God of Israel. Remember the golden calf. And they came to the temple. They came to our temple and violated it. The venue that has the most direct connection to God, the place where there's the most light, the most holiness, ostensibly come the Greeks and say, no, we're bringing darkness, we're going to violate it, we're going to stamp it out. The Greeks went to the extreme. They tried to find the places and the people and the events that had the most holiness 
And they tried to prove that there was nothing special about that at all. Joseph, perhaps we can speculate, is the perfect foil, the complete total opposite of the Greeks. Joseph symbolizes the manifestation of holiness in the least holy places or in the place where you'd least expect holiness to be found. Let's explain. Joseph's life and his narrative in the Torah is dominated by dreams. Everything that happens to him, every transition in his life, every movement, every pivot, every upgrade in his life is connected to a dream. He has two dreams. The brothers hate him. And they want to kill the the dreamer, this, here comes the dreamer coming, let's kill him. Oh no, let's not kill him, let's just throw him into the pit. Oh no, let's sell him as a slave. Joseph is transitioned to Egypt because of the dreams. In Egypt, he's eventually imprisoned, and he establishes his credentials as a dream interpreter when two of his cellmates, the baker and the butler, they have dreams and he interprets them. And then two years later, Pharaoh has his dreams. And when Joseph very skillfully and adeptly interprets those dreams, Pharaoh says, okay, you got to be second command. You become the viceroy of Egypt. Joseph's life is dominated by dreams. And this arouses his brother's enmity. He's derided. He's ridiculed as a dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. The brothers accuse Joseph of not being serious, of being a dreamer who's not rooted in reality. What's he telling us? All these silly stories about what he dreamt about. He has this fertile imagination, but it's not substantiated in the real world. Joseph, in the eyes of the brother, he lives in a reverie. He's not serious. But it's more than that. In Jewish philosophy, fantasy, imagination, it's not just harmless, benign silliness. According to Jewish philosophy, the realm of fantasy and imagination is the domain of the Yetzer Hara. Rabbi Ezra Salanta, the founder of the Musr movement, he characterized Musr as the battle against fantasy and imagination. And he used to explain. He says, you see a little kid, a little kid takes a block of wood and he imagines that this block of wood is a car, is a train, is a boat floating in the ocean. And this is something we see with every child. They have imagination, they have ideas, they have fantasies, they daydream, they space out, they live in a reverie. It's not real. Well, what happens when a child matures and they grow up? What happens to that imagination? What happens to that life of a fantasy, that not real, that that, that faux existence? What happens to it? So Rabbi Yisrael Salanta used to explain that actually that does not disappear. That gets transitioned. And that gets transitioned to the domain most often of the Sahara. And there's two worlds. There's the real world in which God is king, and there's the fake world, the imaginary world, the fantasy world, where the Sahara, the evil inclination, is the foreign god. And our objective, via Torah, it's there to try to rid ourselves, to penetrate and diffuse and dispel and repel and get rid of this imaginary world. And the Talmud tells us, 
that the Yetzirah, its superpower, its ability to get a person to sin is via fantasy. Talmud tells us in the book of Kiddush, page 30b, the Yetzirah, it overpowers a person each day and it renews itself upon a person each day. And of course, the words of our sages are very precise. There are two twin superpowers of the Yetzirah. On one hand, it creates newness. It creates novelty. It takes something that really has nothing exciting about it and adds a little bit of a sizzle to it. And that's why it creates things that are desirable. It's not because it's genuinely, really desirable, but it makes newness. It creates a fantasy. It creates an imagination. On the other hand, it also has a second force, a second superpower, and that is the power to overwhelm a person. Even when a person has no desire, there is no fantasy, there's no imagination. Nevertheless, the person capitulates. What we're told here is that the Yetzirah creates this fantastic imaginary world, and that is one of its two superpowers, to create novelty and newness in things that are truthfully bereft of value. My grandfather, of blessed memory, used to point out that the Mishnah tells us that lust, envy, and honor remove a person from the world. But each one of these three things, lust, envy, and honor, can each be valuable and good and even necessary on their own. They are only deadly when fantasy is involved, when imagination is involved. So in essence, what we're saying here is that the idea of imagination and fantasy being a prime driver of a person's life is not benign and harmless. In fact, it is quite dangerous. And the brothers look at Joseph and say, he's a dreamer. He lives in this imaginary world. They thought that Joseph was completely under the control of the Eight Sahara, under control of the evil inclination, under control of the foreign god. He is indeed Ace of 2.0. He's a total, complete citizen of the fake imaginary world. You read the fifth verse of Parshas Vayeshev, Joseph has a dream and he tells his brothers and they hate him even more. And it's interesting, if you read the verse critically, you'll notice that the brothers hated him before Joseph even conveyed the content of his dreams. Joseph told his brothers that he had a dream and that in itself, that alone made the brothers hate him even more. They thought that he wasn't serious. He was a child. He was petulant. He was small. He was... He was immature. That's what they saw him. He's playing with his hair. He wasn't serious. And now he's telling us his dream? The idea of taking a dream seriously, the domain of the imagination, the fantasy, to take that seriously and to make that important conversation, that is anathema to the brothers. And that's why they hated him. But Joseph proved to be the outlier. Every one of his dreams and the dreams that he was involved with turned out to be prophetic. For Joseph, the imagination and the fantasy is holy. Joseph is the anti-Greek. Joseph brings holiness to the places you'd least expect to find it, to the realm, to the domain typically dominated by the Yetzirah, to the imagination, to the fantasy. Joseph commandeered the mechanism of the Yetzirah, purified it, and made it holy. How did Joseph extricate himself from the entanglement with his master's wife? Rashi tells us, quoting from the Talmud of the book of Sota, 
that Joseph was about to capitulate to sin, and he imagined the visage of his father in the window. Joseph here is doing something unheard of, unprecedented. He's deploying the Yetzirah superpower. Imagination for an act of unmatched holiness. That is what Joseph represents. He's the opposite of the Greeks. The Greeks tried to drown out the light of the Jewish people. Go after the holiest nation. Go after the holiest place. Go after the holiest time and try to stamp it out with darkness. They made the episode of the golden calf their rallying cry. You, the Jewish nation, you have no portion in the God of Israel. The Greeks tried to bring darkness to the light. Joseph brings light to the darkness. He displays holiness amid impurity. Light amid darkness. Joseph has holiness in his dreams. The realm of imagination and fantasy, ostensibly the domain of the Yetzirah, for Joseph, is prophecy. He goes to Egypt, the cesspool of impurity, and he thrives. He even gets the Egyptians to circumcise. The Greeks forbade the holy ones from circumcising, and Joseph brings circumcision to the ostensibly unholy. Joseph truly embodies the message of Hanukkah. Unlike the Greeks who tried to demonstrate that there is no place that has true holiness, Joseph showed us that there is no place that doesn't have true holiness. The dreams in Joseph's world, they're not empty, even sinful fantasies. They're holy. Egypt need not be a cesspool of idolatry. There can be holiness there too. And in each Hanukkah, we remember that even in the darkest times, we can light a candle and bring holiness to whatever situation we're in. It's the winter. It's dark. Lord knows we've had a tough year. We are in exile. And Joseph shows us the way. We can light the candle and illuminate and bring light and holiness to every situation. Our sages calculate that there are 36 candles that we light over the course of the eight days of Hanukkah. And this, our sages tell us, corresponds to the 36 hours that Adam spent in the garden. He spent 12 hours on Friday and 24 hours on Shabbos on Saturday. And what our sages explain is that there is a connection between the light, so to speak, that Adam experienced in the garden and the light that we do, that we fulfill with the lighting of the Hanukkah menorah, of the lights of Hanukkah. There were two lights in Genesis. There's light of day one, this completely spiritual light, and there's the light of day four, the light that comes from the sun, the light that comes from a physical source, the light that we are familiar with. And what happened to the light of day one? Where did it go to? So our sages tell us, and this is actually featured in Rashi in his commentary on the Torah, that this light was hidden away for the righteous in the future, in the afterlife. There is this light that's so sublime, that's so spiritual, that's so above us, that in our current existence, in our current makeup, we just... We just can't connect to it. We have no connection to it. Maybe in the future, hopefully for righteous, our soul is maybe pulled out of our body. We have holiness, true holiness. 
we can have a little bit of that light. And that light was experienced by Hannah for 36 hours. And somehow our sages tell us that when we light the 36 candles of the Hanukkah menorah, we're tapping into those 36 hours of light that Adam experienced. When do we reenact the light of day one, the holiest light that ever existed on Hanukkah? In our situation, however deplorable or pathetic or dark or depressed it may be, we still have access to the light of the menorah, to the light of Torah, to the light of heaven. There is no situation that we cannot access the highest level of holiness. That is the lesson of Hanukkah, and that is embodied by Joseph more than anyone else. And this is really our life's mission. You know, we believe, of course, that we have a body and a soul, and these two are opposites. And if you were to ask most people who accept that premise, who accept that assumption, well, okay, which one's more important? Which one should we focus on? And people would typically say, well, it's got to be the soul, right? That's the answer that most people would give. But if you examine it really closely and carefully, you'll find out that it's actually not true. The soul is holy. We have that in the bank. We could lose it, of course. Every sin is a blemish, so to speak, to the soul. We've got to cleanse it. We've got to repent. With our behavior, we can sully our soul. We can diminish its potency and power. But when you do a mitzvah, you do it with your body. And the objective of that is to take the soul and its powerful holiness and to have that influence the body as well, to uplift the body, make it holy as well, to bring light to the darkness, to create parity between the body and the soul, to influence the place where holiness ostensibly does not lie. Your body, after all, you know, is physical. Animals have bodies too. Gentiles have bodies too. Bodies have done terrible things. Bodies, maybe you may say, is dark. But we follow Joseph. We follow the doctrine of holiness of Joseph. And that is that even in the darkest place, you could infuse light too. And that's the message of Hanukkah. My grandfather, blessed memory, used to say to his students that the more Torah you study and the more you connect to it, not just to study it as a hobby or as something that you do in defined times, but to make it your passion, to make it your pastime, to make it the thing that you really want to do, that's your life. Everything else is secondary to that. That is, of course, the objective of yeshiva, where you go and spend time in an environment that is completely a holy environment. And the people that buy into that idea are people that say, okay, during the time that I'm in the yeshiva, I'm going to become a different kind of person. I'm going to become a holier person, a more spiritual, more intellectual person. So my grandfather used to tell students, how do you know that it's starting to work, that it's starting to click? How do you know that the influence of this environment, this holy environment of the yeshiva is actually starting to penetrate? When you start to dream Dreams of Torah. Dreams, like we said, dreams are the area where the imagination runs amok. And most oftentimes, that's a product of the Sahara. That's one of his superpowers, like we mentioned. And that's somewhat dangerous. The imagination, the dreams, who knows what you could dream about at night? 
most often it's not necessarily righteous, holy things. But it's possible, like Joseph showed us and like Hanukkah implores us, it's possible to take that area and to bring light to there as well. And my grandfather used to tell students, when you start dreaming about thoughts of Torah, ideas of Torah, you go to bed with a question, you've read a very difficult passage in the Talmud, a very difficult passage in one of the Rishon, one of the early commentators, maybe it's a very difficult passage in the Rambam, you'll go to sleep with a question and you'll wake up in the morning with an answer. And how did you develop that answer? It came to you during your imagination, during the part of your day where you're really not in control of what you're thinking about. And that, of course, is fertile grounds for the eight around normally. But when someone uplifts, when someone brings light to the darkness, that too becomes infused with light. And no matter what situation we are in, Hanukkah is the time that we can transform ourselves. We could be very, very dark. But now is the time to make a spiritual move. My grandfather used to note that in the prayer that we say during the liturgy of Hanukkah, we say the Al-Hanisim prayer. And that tells the story of Hanukkah, what happened in Hanukkah, and what the Greeks tried to do, and what Matasyahu, Matthias, and his family, how they fought back, and how we won. And if you read it, what it tells us is that the Almighty made this miracle, that he gave the mighty in the hands of the weak, and the many in the hands of the few, and the impure in the hands of the pure, and the wicked in the hands of the righteous, and the wanton sinners in the hands of those who study Torah. There were five miracles for five different kinds of people. Our nation was comprised of a mixed band like it is today. We had weak people. We had few people, so to speak. We had holy people, righteous people, pure people, and we had people who were studying Torah. We had an entire spectrum. And every one of these people leveled up. The power of this day, the power of these days, the power of Hanukkah is no matter where you are, no matter what situation you're in, no matter where on this spectrum, so to speak, of holiness you fall into, it doesn't matter. Now is the time where the light penetrates the darkness. And we're not saying, we're not suggesting that over the course of eight days, we could become the holiest people, we could become Joseph Light, we could become really righteous, we could change our lives. But what we know for sure is that everyone has the ability to move up one notch, to level up just a little bit to become a little bit more holy, to take our darkened lives, so to speak. We still are under the influence of the Greeks after all. The idea of God, of faith, is derided as creationism. Oh, these people still believe these antiquated ideas that have, they're not modern, that are not relevant. The idea that our way of life that our principles, that our priorities, that our values are mocked, that's not unique to the times of the Greeks. That still exists today. We still live in some spiritually darkened times. We have not yet been rescued, so to speak, by the light of Messiah that will totally dispel all the darkness of the Greeks and their associated conspirators. But Hanukkah is the time for us to make a move. And a little bit like Joseph in the Parsha, and a little bit like the heroes, the Hashmanom, the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, to take that candle and to light the candle when it's dark. We're acknowledging it's dark. We're acknowledging that there is 
parts of our lives that are not perfect, that are not completely diffused with light, that are not completely infused with holiness. And you know what? Even in those areas, we could bring a little glimmer, a little flicker of light, a little bit of holiness. And you know what? Like the saying goes, a little bit of light can dispel a lot of darkness. I hope you enjoyed. Have an amazing Shabbos. Have an amazing Hanukkah. Thank you so much for listening. My email address is rabbiwalbajim.com. Go to my website, rabbiwalbajim.com forward slash newsletter to subscribe to the newsletter to speaking to y'all soon.